All right, so we just finished a couple of, um, couple of series, and we've gotten uh, lots of great um, comments uh, about the, uh, the last couple of series. Uh, we did uh, Starting Over series, and then we did Make Church Great Again series, and actually that was about more about making you great, making you a, a closer follower of Christ. And so as we are approaching Easter, and Easter is April 16th, and so I want you to engrave that date in your mind, in your head, on your calendar, and I want you to be particular about who you are inviting to church, because in one of those sermons about Make Church Great Again, we talked about being a bringer. One reason that makes a church great again is that we are bringers. We bring people to church, okay? And so, now we, we don't bring people to, uh, uh, to salvation. Only Jesus Christ can do that. And he actually draws them closer to his heart. We can introduce them uh, to Jesus, get them in front of the message, in front of the gospel. And the, way, the best way to do that is through either small groups, uh, or through, um, through church on Sunday. So begin thinking about people you want to bring that God's laying on your heart. And we actually had uh, several of you text us those names, and we've been praying over that list of names. There's a lot of them. And so we, uh, we encourage you to, uh, uh, to be praying about the people that God's laid on your heart uh, to bring on Easter. So, but as, we lead, as we're leading up to Easter... I asked Lord, okay, what, what do you want us to focus on? What, how do you want us to prepare our hearts for Easter? Easter's a, Easter's a big day, huge day in the life of the church. Yeah, Christmas is nice. It's great that he was born in the manger of a virgin birth and all that stuff. It's, it's really cool, wise men and everything. But you know, the reason why he was born is so that he could die for us and then rise again, beat hell, death, and the grave. And so um, East, that's why Easter is huge. And it's, so it's a, it's a day of hope. And so as we're getting towards Easter, um, I, I feel like the, the word that kept coming out more and more and more was the word grace. The word grace. You know, grace is a word um, that I'm not so sure we completely comprehend what grace is. Um, you know, uh, we, we say grace at, at dinner time or, or some of our meals. We, we say grace. We, uh, we sing songs about grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, the saved the ranch like me. We sing songs about grace. And so, but do we really, truly comprehend what grace is about? So over the next few weeks, um, and I'm not even, um, even going to prom- really promote this series. It actually is a series, but it's really all about the road to grace because we're going to end this on Easter. And so the road to grace we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. And we're going to talk about how Jesus, or God himself, through Jesus, was able to show his grace to us. And also, in, obviously, in Scripture, and it's going to speak to us. Hopefully, it'll speak to you as well. But there's a few things about grace that we, uh, we should probably um, kind of understand. So what is, what is so amazing about grace? You know, the amazing grace, how sweet the sound. What is so amazing about grace. Well, grace is the unmerited, undeserved, unearned kindness and favor of God. Let me share that again. Grace is the unmerited, undeserved, unearned kindness and favor of God. There's nothing you can do to earn or nothing that we do in our life that we deserve 
God's grace. And I'm going to open up a few passages of Scripture. You can find this on our Bible app uh, on thebible.com and search for events, Lake Point Church. We also have it on the screen. But we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. And this talks about the unmerited um, uh, grace of God. So verse 8, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. So salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. We can't walk in our life and say, man, look what I've done to, to, uh, to merit this grace. You know, look, look at the things that I've done in my life that I can show God. God, surely I deserve your grace. Well, what does it say about undeserved? In Romans chapter 11, verse 6, it says, And since it is through God's kindness, then it is not by their good works or your good works or my good works. For in that case, God's grace would not be what it really is, free and undeserved. We do not deserve that grace. And it's only through his kindness and not by our good works. What about unearned? In Romans 3, 24, it says, Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. And he did this through Jesus Christ. Uh, Christ Jesus, when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. So he did that. Nothing we can do can earn that grace. Um, it, I kind of like to use this analogy. Have you ever received a, uh, a present from someone, a gift, say like a Christmas or your birthday, and they give you a gift, and it's wrapped, and it looks nice. If it's from me, it's in a bag with tissue on it, you know, because that's, that's how I roll, right? But if you receive a gift from someone, have you ever had someone say, hey, that'll be $86? What? $86? Yeah, yeah, that's how much a gift costs. I mean, it costs me $86. That's a lot of money. I mean, here's your gift, but, I mean, I need something in return. I need $86, yeah, you'd be like, man, you keep your gift. <laughs> but, but you've never had that before, <laughs> unless you're given a gift like from your children. My, my, if my children give a gift to me sometimes, they're like, hey, Dad, here's a gift that I bought for you. And I'm like, oh, that you bought for me with my money? Okay, sure. <laughs> but other than that, you don't receive those gifts and then say, hey, uh, here, here's a bill for that gift. No, we don't. Why? Because it's a gift. It's a gift. There's nothing that you and I did to earn that gift. Um, except if it's your birthday, except that you were born. That's the only thing you did. And you really had nothing to do with that. So, um, so it's almost kind of like that. It's a free gift that God gives uh, to us. So, so kind of a, now that we kind of have a basic understanding of grace, that it's unmerited, undeserved, and unearned kindness in favor of God, um, let's, uh, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been changed by grace? Have you ever been radically changed by grace? From insecure to God secure. From afraid to die to ready to fly. From uh, grace, you know, grace comes after you. It rewires you. Grace is a voice that calls us to change and then gives us the power to pull it off. Grace is the very thing that causes us to change, but gives us the power 
to pull it off. Grace is what happens when we receive a new heart. It's almost like a spiritual heart transplant. There's a story, a great story about a mother and father, a Tara and Todd. Tara and Todd had a, um, had a 13-year-old daughter, and they were on a ski trip, and this uh, 13-year-old daughter, her name was Taylor, she was in a, uh, a very bad accident on the ski trip, and uh, so bad that um, she, uh, she actually died from the accident in the hospital. And so Tara and Todd had to face the thing they feared the most, that is funeral, phone calls, those, those phone calls you never want to have to make. And so at the funeral, they, they, um, they talked about how Tara, I mean, how Taylor was just a great girl, and, but that her life would continue because they gave her heart away to someone who needed the heart. And mom and dad wanted one request when they gave her heart, which is a good heart, away. They said, we just want to be able to hear her heartbeat. That's the only thing we want. We want to be able to hear her heartbeat, whoever her heart goes to. Patricia Winters is a lady who needed a fresh start on life. Patricia Winters lived in Phoenix. Taylor and her parents lived in Dallas, Texas. And so Patricia received the new heart, Taylor's heart. And so the, Taylor's mom and dad flew from Dallas to Phoenix. They embraced for several minutes crying with Patricia. And Patricia then provided them with the tool that they needed to hear their heart, her daughter's heartbeat, the stethoscope. Handed her the stethoscope. And with both parents sharing that stethoscope in her place on Patricia's chest, Patricia holding it there, not saying a word, but just letting the heart beat. Ba-bum, ba-bum, ba-bum. Mom and dad, just crying in tears of joy, they heard the life of our daughter, their daughter Taylor, beating once again. You know, it wasn't Patricia's heart. It, it was Taylor's heart. It was Taylor's heart put into Patricia's body. So they heard their daughter's heartbeat. And, and when God hears your heart, if you have surrendered your heart to Jesus, if Jesus has come into your life and you've surrendered your life and you said, Lord, whatever, whatever you want is, is mine, here's my life, take it, Lord. Then when God hears your heart with his stethoscope, he doesn't hear your heart. He hears the still beating heart of his son, Jesus, in your life. He is taking over your life. It's kind of like what Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives where? In me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. So the Apostle Paul, he sensed within himself the person of Jesus Christ. Grace is God as heart surgeon. Grace is God as heart surgeon, where God says, all right, let me give you a new heart. Now, before you think, oh, wow, that's kind, of, that's kind of weird. Now, it's not literally God's going to open your chest in the middle of the night and, you know, and all that kind of stuff, but it's, it's figuratively speaking, Jesus Christ gives you a fresh heart by removing some of that sin, that shame, that guilt, and gives you that fresh start, that new heart, and replacing it with his very own. And he does this, rather than tell you to change, he creates the change. Rather than tell you to change, he creates a change. You see, many of us get that backwards. I've, given, I've gotten it backwards as well. We think we need to change. Lord, I need to change. I need to, I need to do something, something better. And we try to do it without the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. And we try to do it in our own abilities and our own strength. And God's like, look, I, I want you to change, but I'm going to create the change within you. Allow me to fill you with all that I am, and to allow that change to happen, and for me to cause that change. So today, we're going to start that, that talk about grace, and that is what grace is. It's about heart surgery, giving us a new heart. You know, God is all-powerful, full of majesty and splendor. He created everything in the whole world, everything you can see and everything you can't see. He sits on his majestic throne. He's surrounded by billions of angels. The train of his robe, as it says in Isaiah chapter 6, fills the temple where his temple is. And, and smoke and fire and, and all of this majestic power, God surrounds himself with. He surrounds himself with light. Yet, he is still a God who stoops. He is still a God who bends over and stoops, just like he did at creation. He created everything with words. The Bible says that. With his mouth, he created everything. He spoke it into being, all of creation, except for one thing, and that was human. That was man and woman. Because the Bible says, we believe this, that God stooped down to earth with the dust, held it in his hand, blew life into that. And he created man and woman with his very own hands. Why? Because he wanted to handcraft us. He didn't want to just speak into being. He wanted his hands on this part of creation. And so he is a God who stoops down into the dirt. There was another time that God stooped. It was through his son Jesus. And it was this story that begins something like this. It was early one morning. And Teachers of the law 
People who knew of the law and, and taught people how to live righteously back in Jesus' time. They stormed into this house, broke in. They opened the curtains. They pulled off the covers of this woman caught in adultery. Never do we hear about the man. Oh, but it's the woman caught in adultery. They, they pulled her out of the bed, barely trying to put clothes on, back on to where she could be somewhat presentable. They pulled her out of the house, drug her out down the streets, made her walk through the tiny, narrow streets while other women were looking out their windows. People who had businesses kind of staring at her as they're walking by in the marketplace. Mothers taking their children and, and bringing them inside so they dare not see the sin and the shame by these religious people. Bringing her down the streets right into a Sunday school class, the temple. They threw her right down in the middle of the temple. And that's where we pick up in John chapter 8, verse 2. But early the next morning, he, Jesus, was back again at the temple. He was at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down, and he taught them. As he was speaking, the, relig the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. The law of Moses. Who cares that you're the son of God? The law of Moses says that we should stone her. What do you say? Trap. He can smell it. Jesus can smell that trap miles away. He knows her heart. You know, the woman, the woman had no exit. She had no exit plan. I mean, can she deny the accusation? No, she was caught. Can she plead for mercy? From who? Who could she plead mercy from? His, um, his spokesman uh, of the teachers of the law were, were squeezing stones. God's spokesman. God's uh, men who were supposed to be teaching people, guiding people how to live a righteous life over the uh, hundreds of years have brought down Many, many man-made rules and regulations, so much that they were taxing people with heavy loads to where they couldn't even live that life of freedom. It was a life of guilt and shame. And so they were holding stones. You know, I can imagine maybe... The stones look something like this. Imagine if I took this stone and I was ready to stone you. If I just took this and I'm ready to throw this at you, first of all, you'll move. And I probably couldn't hit you anywhere because I'm a bad aim. But imagine being hit by this stone, by this rock. This is probably about a sized rock that they had lying around everywhere, around Jerusalem. These are easy to find. 
These are easy to find in my backyard too. I had lots of these. My kids throw these, sometimes at each other. Sometimes I don't stop that because I want to see if they can actually have a pretty good aim. Just kidding. But this, this stone, this rock, they held in their hands, ready to stone. But no one would speak for this woman. No one would speak for her, but someone would stoop for her. Someone would stoop for her. They were trying to trap him in verse 6. They were trying to trap him, Jesus, into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. He descended lower than anyone else. He stooped lower than the Pharisees and the teachers. In fact, he stooped even lower than the woman to write in the sand. And in fact, he stooped so low that I wonder if it reminded him as he was writing in the sand of the time when he created man. Because Jesus was there at creation. And I wonder, as he was writing in the sand, he was thinking, I remember this. I remember the first time I touched this dirt with my hand and I formed human flesh, my best creation, my most beautiful creation. I wonder if he thought that. And I wonder if he thought, you know, earthly people will do earthly things. The earth is full of sin since the fall of Satan from heaven. And I wonder if he thought earthly humans, earthly people are prone to do earthly things. But as he was riding in the sand, this lynch mob became very impatient by the silent, stooping Jesus. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again. He lifted up himself until his shoulders were straight and his head was high and he stood there on behalf of this woman. He placed himself between her and this lynch mob of people with stones in their hands. In, in verse 7 and 8, John chapter 8, it says this, they kept demanding an answer. They were impatient. Sitting there watching Jesus writing and saying, okay, we asked you. The law of Moses said we should stone her. What do you say, Jesus? Demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. <laughs> I love that. I love the fact that Jesus, and he, he does this all throughout scripture. He has these just short little answers. It's like, all right, give to Caesar what is Caesar. Give to God what is God. Case closed, argument done. That's another time he spoke simple little words. In this case, those who are without sin, all right, cast the first stone. Wait, silence. If they had jeopardy, you could probably hear that in the background, the jeopardy theme. And, and nothing was happening. So he decided to stoop again and continue writing in the sand, which is 
the only sermon that Jesus ever wrote down. Jesus didn't write any of the Bible with his own hands. The only thing he wrote down that the Bible tells us was something he wrote in the sand, which probably later that day was gone. Rocks fell to the ground as Jesus returned to the scribbling. Verse 9, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, probably because he had a lot of sin, until only Jesus is left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. But Jesus wasn't finished. He stood up one final time and asked an amazing question. Where are your accusers? The men are gone. The accusers are gone. It's Jesus and this woman. And, and, and maybe there's some other other people still lingering from the crowd when Jesus was talking earlier in the temple. Remember, they're in the middle of the temple courtyard, and Jesus says, where are your accusers? Wow, what an amazing question, not just for her, but for us. Voices of condemnation haunt us as well. Do you ever have these voices in your head, in your heart, that say, you know, you aren't good enough? Or maybe you hear words like, you'll never improve. Are you kidding me? You can't improve. You can't, you can't knock this out of your life. Or maybe you hear things like, you failed again. There you go. Living up to your family. Living up to your parents. Living up to your life. And, and remember what you've done in the past. Yeah, you'll always be that person. You failed again. Or maybe you hear words like, man, you're, you're such a slut. There you are again. Doing these things. Sending pictures through text messages of yourself or sleeping around. Who is this person that reminds us and condemns us? Does he ever shut up? The answer is no. Because Satan will never shut up. Satan never shuts up. The apostle John calls Satan the great accuser. In Romans chapter 12, uh, we had this, wrote, read this in our, in our Revelation series, in Revelation, not Romans. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 through 10, it says, this great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all of his angels. Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, it has come at last, salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ for the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth. The one who accuses them before our God day and night. You ever feel like your accuser is haunting you day and night? These voices Especially if you, if, you've had a, if you have a past. We all have a past. Even if we're saved at an early age. I was saved at age six. And I, I gave my life to Jesus. But just because I lived, gave my life to Jesus doesn't mean I've lived a perfect life. Even as a believer, I have a past. And, but through the years, God has reshaped my heart, reshaped my actions. Because I'm falling more in love with him. And I do everything I can in my abilities and with the power of the Holy Spirit to live a life 
that will shine forth his glory and his righteousness. Treating my wife correctly with respect and love. Treating my kids with love, but guiding them in, in love and through discipline. By loving our church. By showing and shepherding our church. I love you. And I'm, we're here for you. By, by living my life when nobody else is watching, when nobody else is looking. And even during our, 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 our times of, of fast, which our fast ends on, on Wednesday, and as we're doing this as a church, I've been drawing even closer to the Lord. The Lord's revealing a lot of things to me and, and, and changing some things in my heart and some selfishness that I've fought for years. God is teaching me. God is changing me. And that's how he works. That's how he works in our life. And that's how he works work in your life. But it's hard whenever we have those voices that keep us awake at night. You can't sleep. You have those voices. You have those thoughts in your head. You, you, can't, you can't focus. Maybe it's because you have those voices in your head those things in your heart reminding you of those things. So what is the difference between what Satan will give you and what the Holy Spirit will give you? So this, this is important for you to understand. So when we sin, when we have things in our life, and if we are, if we are a, a believer, if we've given our life to Jesus, then the Holy Spirit comes inside us, and the Holy Spirit knocks in our heart and says, Hey, Hey, buddy, um, what you just did there, um, I'm not pleased with. And so let's work on this together. I still love you, but let's work on this together. All right? Now, uh, let's, let's find some scripture. Let's find some other people who could pray for you. You can't do this on your own. Let's work together on this. That's called Conviction. Conviction actually has hope. Conviction is not a dead-end road. Conviction is when you realize you've done something and you're like, oh, yeah, I, I don't need to do that again. It's like when you touch a hot iron, which I've done before, not realizing it was on, grabbing it from the wrong end, you know, and like, oh, wow, that, that was really hot. I don't need to do that ever again. So just like touching something hot, we learn from that. And that is conviction. That is the Holy Spirit. Conviction is not wrong. Conviction is good. Because you know why? Conviction leads us to confession. You're right, Lord. I should not do that. I confess. I own that. And repent. You do everything you can to walk away from that, never to do that again. But the words that Satan gives is condemnation. It's strictly condemnation. And condemnation leads only to regret. Yeah, look what you did. Yeah, that's, that's all on you. You have no hope. You call yourself a Christian. You go to church. You, people know you as a Christian. Now you've done this. And now people know that you've done this. And what are you going to say about that? You can't change. Just live that life. I mean, that's just, that's just who you are. You know, that sin that you keep doing, that's just who you are, all right? Maybe God made you that way. Maybe God made you that way, to be like that. You know, maybe that's not something that, that you're supposed to resist. 
And what that does, it brings only regret. Regret because we believe that lie, we live that lie, and then that only brings hopelessness, despair, and it brings a dead end. That is condemnation. That is what Satan gives. And that is what the people were giving to the adulterous woman. Satan, he longs to march you through the city streets and dragging your name through the mud, right, for everybody to see. He pushes you in the center of the crowd and megaphones your, your, your sin to the world. This person was caught in the act of immorality, stupidity, dishonesty, irresponsibility. This person was done, and he throws your sin, and he throws you what you've done right in the middle of the people, right in the middle of the people you know. It could be through social media. It could be through work. It could be at school. Maybe you've done something, you made a bad choice, and you text something to a friend, and that text, or maybe, God forbid, that picture goes around school like, vir- like a virus. And he throws that in front of everybody. And he says, aha, look. But let me tell you something. Your accuser, Satan, will never have the last word. He will never have the last word because Jesus has acted on your behalf. Because Jesus stoops. He's the God who stoops. He stooped low enough to sleep in a manger. He stooped low enough to work in a carpentry shop. As king of kings, a lord of lords, and now he's on earth as a carpenter. He stooped low enough to sleep in a fishing boat. He stooped low enough to rub shoulders with crooks and lepers. He, he stoops low enough to be spat upon, slapped, nailed on a cross, and speared through the side. Low, even low enough to be buried in a tomb. But then... He stood up high. He stood up high on the slab of death, upright in the tomb, and right into Satan's face, tall and high, squaring his shoulders back, rising from the dead. Christ Jesus rises in your defense as he rose to defeat sin, hell, and the grave. Just like rising in the middle of that mob who was ready to stone throw, throw stones at this woman, he stands at the evil, and he stands in between you and the great accuser, Satan. He stands there for you, with you. There's no condemnation. Your condemnation is no more. As it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 33 and 34, who dares accuse us? I love that. Who dares accuse us from God has chosen for his own? God has chosen for his own you. No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. 
For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand. You know what he's doing there? He's not just relaxing. He's not just relaxing with someone feeding him grapes and he's drinking wine. He's not there just chilling out. Okay, he, he's not up there making a, a March Madness bracket, even though he knows he's going to win that. You know, he's not doing all of that. You know what he's doing? He's pleading your case to God the Father. God, that person down there, that person down there, called his name Joey. Yeah, Joey, he gave his life to me. I did heart transplant on Joey. He has my heart. He's made a mistake. I, I, I'm going to speak on his behalf. When you look at Joey, Father, I need you to look at me first. When you look at Joey, I need you to look at me first. You see, when that mob was surrounding that adulterous woman and she was right in the middle, who did they have to look in order to look at her, they had to look at Jesus. Maybe he had to look around Jesus because Jesus was standing between them and her. Jesus is telling you, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. You know, he is, he is our advocate He's the one standing with us. As it says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, My dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, because we all do, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. We have an advocate, but we also have an accuser. Which one are you going to trust? Which one are you going to trust? Because the accuser has a stone in his hand. Have you been beat down? Have you been beat down by what you've done? Your advocate didn't have any stones. Can I tell you something? When, when, when they dropped the stones and they left, the stones were still there. Jesus had plenty of stones he could have used. He didn't pick up a single one. Why? It's not his nature. He's our advocate. Trust your advocate, not your accuser. Trust his promise, as it says in Romans chapter 1. So, there, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus Christ. Those who belong to Jesus Christ. Do you belong to Jesus? Do you belong to him? As we close, we, we, we're gonna, we pause our story with a question that Jesus asked. He asked this question, where are your accusers? As it says in, in, in John 8, 10 through 11. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? Shaking, shaking and crying and, and still trying to hide herself with whatever clothes she was able to get on. She, she says, no, Lord, no. 
No. Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Jesus is telling you the same thing. Go. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Within a few minutes, the courtyard was empty. Jesus was there left with the woman. Eventually, they ran away. And imagine in this courtyard, rocks, stones in a circle, and words written down was the only thing left. 